0: So this is welcome to one the one hundred and seventh twenty seventh lesson in the eight essential elements of the biblical Christian Gospel series, which happens to also be the thirty fourth lesson in the Baptized in the Holy Spirit two thousand seventeen version, which will still be called the two thousand seventeen version although it's going to not end till two thousand eighteen. So this is the tenth message on these hindrances to the Holy Spirit, but it. These are not only hindrances to getting baptized in the Spirit. We've been trying to stress they will hinder your entire Christian life. The Romans 8 says that those who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. There is no way to do this Christian life out of human effort, personal strength. Uh, That's kind of one of the big messages of the whole Bible. Paul says that he would rather boast in his weaknesses Because when he is weak, Christ is strong. And there's much teaching in the Bible about brokenness. People talk about how Jacob, after he wrestled with God and wrestled with the angel of God, had a limp. And how, uh, you know, some people actually, one of the best compliments I ever got was from a very mature Christian who said, your limp is beautiful. In other words, like, God's beaten the stuffing out of you since I saw you last. <laughs> and, you're, and you're much more humble than you used to be. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, that's... Uh, coming from uh, certain sources, that's probably a pretty good compliment. But, uh, you know... Um, so, just keep in mind, these will hinder you from receiving the baptism in the Spirit in the first place, but they'll also hear you, hinder you from being sensitive to the Spirit, being filled again and again with the Spirit, and so forth. Now, we've gotten through four of these incomplete conversions, Charlie Brown syndrome, occult involvement, unforgiveness, and bitterness, and today we're going to look at the spirit of unbelief, or what you might call natural-mindedness. Now, Uh, I have some phrases at the very bottom of the first page, pseudo-rational. What does that mean? uh, Pseudo means false. And we live in a time when uh, we, we are kind of brainwashed that we are supposed to be rational beings and apply reason to everything and so forth. But the fact is we live in one of the most illogical, absurd kind of time periods of all time. And, you know, they take uh, great surveys of public opinion on this or that with no uh, thought to how how valid are, uh, are the opinions based on how much experience or knowledge they have. You know, like we live in such a narcissistic time, the most uneducated, unexperienced, uh, unstable people uh, think of themselves as having great truths and... and uh, great opinions inside themselves and uh one of the hardest things in in working with somebody it uh the the more difficult of troubles they tend to be in that is the more uh immaturity and and brokenness and sin and different things are still ruling their life the more of a know-it-all they tend to be <laughs> and uh so and uh that's just the way it is and and uh you uh you know that someone's going to be wise and have good judgment and uh, good balance in their, amount, in their life and emotional, physical, social self-control when, in fact, they have a great sense of leaning on God and not on themselves. And when uh, someone is sort of full of their own opinion and so forth, they tend to be uh, the, the people you'd think like, they're the least pr- person who should be leaning on their own <laughs> understanding. They don't have that much understanding. But, in fact, learning to lean on the Lord's understanding is part of getting understanding. So flip over and we'll get into some some of these things oh i then the anti-supernatural flip back over, I forgot the rest of the list. but when when I use the word materialist, I mean the, the philosophy of life. There are four major worldviews: pantheism, polytheism, theism, and materialism or naturalism, and that's the idea that all things material is is uh, eternal, there is no intelligent designer, uh, things just happened by chance and evolved and, and that sort of thing, and that's kind of the spirit of the age we live in. Most advanced cultures today, most industrialized, educated uh, co- countries of the world are materialist. If you understand anything about communism, for instance, or and in, in the religion and philosophy that runs the nation of China, it's called dialectical materialism. And it's uh, the idea, uh, I can remember in the 80s, uh, talking to uh, some students who had just arrived from China at Ohio State University, and they happened to move in next door to our campus ministry house, and so we were having a great discussion one night, and it was the first they'd ever heard that there were still people who believed that there was a supernatural being. They had been brought up to believe that was some archaic thing that stupid people believed before man began to develop education science reason and and started to advance and pull himself out of the primeval muck that's what they had been led to believe their whole life and they were fascinated by this idea that we thought there's a spiritual being there are spiritual beings and there's a whole spiritual side of life that's unseen they thought that was an amazing idea (laughs) you know and uh they said, we want to go, come to your church. We'd, we'd like to see a typical American church. I said, well, I'm not so sure we're a typical American church, but, but we'd love to have you come to the church. So, um, materialism is the philosophy of our day, day. It's the religion that's taught in our public schools. And it's not a neutral religion. It's a value that's extremely anti-Christian. And your kids are brainwashed in, in it if they... Don't attend uh, some kind of private Christian school. So that's what I mean by materialism. Pseudoscientific, we'll talk about scientism in a minute, but it's kind of an irrational belief in science that dominates our age. And a priori skepticism is the idea that we have already dismissed spiritual things. Now that even happens among Christians. There was a famous story of a cessationist who... uh, was very anti the, the current move of the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues and healings and prophecies and casting out of demons. So he uh, advertised all over the state of Texas that uh, he would pay $1,000 to any man who could uh, demonstrate uh, an irrefutable mar- miracle. And so uh, a Pentecostal evangelist was having a big rally. He invited these men to sit in the front row and he called out a blind person from the audience, had these guys come up and examine him, said, is, you know, is he blind? And they said, yes. He prayed for him. God healed the guy. And they said, can he see? And in their case, they didn't dismiss it to uh, to there is no supernatural events, and this must have been some psychosomatic kind of positive benefit from irrationally believing, which is what most people... If Today you'll hear doctors saying, oh, there's good, there's good things in prayer. What they mean is there's a, a psychosomatic positive benefit if you think positively, and if you pray to whatever your absurd God is, and that somehow uh, makes you feel better, and that will help heal you. <laughs> That's what they mean by that, actually. Um, and this guy actually said, well... I know he was blind and I know he can see, but he must have been healed by Satan because we know God doesn't do these things today, even though he'd been prayed over in the name of Jesus Christ. So this, and you know, uh, that's just the way uh, our you know, things are right now. So when I say uh, a priori skepticism, uh, you've been brainwashed in this culture to doubt supernatural things. If we are going to come out of unbelief, if we are going to come out of doubt, if we are going to become a spirit-filled, spirit-led people, we're not going to do that accidentally. That's why one year we had our book of the year be Bill Johnson's, uh, what's the name of that book? When Heaven Invades Invades Earth. And then it's kind of got a subtitle, something like a daily guide to a life of miracles. Because, you know, miracles should be an average everyday experience in the Christian life. You should be aware of supernatural guidance every minute of every day. The very first thing you should be doing in the morning, whether it's through reading the word, humbling yourself, uh, I always say reorient yourself in the gospel, think about the great things of the gospel, how big God is, how holy he is, and so forth, how sinful we are, how unable to bridge that gap we are, how much we need a rescuer how much we are inclined to be uh, boastful, prideful, leaning on ourselves, so that we uh, intentionally empty ourselves every morning and so forth. Uh, You know, and we do things to get in the Spirit, such as read the Word, spend time speaking in tongues, spend time worshiping out loud, but we understand that we have a tendency to gravitate back toward natural-mindedness. And the fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, and so forth, not the fruits of a lot of effort. Now, that's not to say it doesn't take effort to get into the Spirit, but it's a very different kind of effort than self-initiated and self-sustained effort. The efforts of God are initiated by His call of grace on our life, and we are motivated by His grace to humble ourselves, to seek Him, to be filled with His Spirit, and so forth. And we know we can only do this Christian life by the power of the Holy Spirit. I am a lousy Christian, and let me just tell you a little secret. So are you. (laughs) Isn't that exciting? But the risen Lord Jesus makes available his outpoured spirit, and he's a great Christian. And that's the secret to leaning on him, is the secret to uh, gradually coming out of being a yo-yo experience in your Christian life, all of whom we have all ridden many most roller coasters in the things of the Lord. My Christian life was up and down so much, uh, some of my friends started to call me Duncan. That's a yo-yo company, by the way. Alright, so let's uh, turn over and look at some pertinent scriptures. I'm going to turn us to Mark chapter 5, and uh, I think we'll read that right after the top one, Matthew 13, oh, we'll read the top two. Uh, Matthew 13, 53 through 58, Uh, whenever I have more, the, the reference is more than I have printed there, I'm... I'm keeping myself to the limits of getting the whole message on the front and back of a page. And I'm just suggesting that if you took this home, spent some time reviewing the message and read the verse in a bigger context, it would be even more insightful. So when Jesus uh, came to his hometown, um, oh, by the way, uh, verse 52 makes it after he had told the parables. If you know anything about Matthew 13, Matthew 13 is a very, very important chapter Because in it, Jesus tells seven parables of what the kingdom of God presently is. Starting with what we call the parable of the sower and the seed, that should be called the parable of the soil, because the sower and the seed stay the same, the soil is what changes. Excuse me. So, uh, he came to his own hometown, and he began teaching them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Are his sisters and his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. The Greek word is scandalizo, which means to scandalize, to be. Stumble to be offended in a moral outrage sense, but Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown and his own household. By the way, that's why the hardest people to help go forward in the Lord are your own natural family, especially when you convert after having been non Christian for a while in your life and behavior. First of all, your family will be very skeptical for some time and secondly uh, long long beyond when they should be skeptical by the way well, you, you can live it for 10 years before in front of them they still won't get it sometimes um, and you know they remember how you were so uh, and they didn't and he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief now what's not clear from Matthew and Mark's version of that passage is if Jesus was actually hindered by their unbelief, that's not what the scripture says, or or if he simply chose to do less miraculous there. But in any case, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the point of the verse is, when there is a spirit of unbelief, there will be less activity of Jesus. And Jesus is the baptizer in the Holy Spirit. So, uh, excuse me, we are quite hindered in experiencing the Holy Spirit by our own unbelief and translate that into all the things on the front page, pseudo-rational, materialistic, natural-minded, skeptical mindsets that we are trying to ask God to deliver us from and that we are pursuing deliverance from as part of our Christian sanctification and maturation process. Hopefully everyone understands what I'm saying there. Now, 1 Corinthians two, uh, again, if the whole chapter is good, especially verses four through sixteen. Sixteen is the end of the chapter, but I'm just going to read verse fourteen. But a natural man does not accept, receive is uh, another translation, the things of the Spirit of God. I think uh, ESV says accept, or I'm sorry, NASB says accept, uh, re- receive is ESV and New King James, I believe. You can check check it out, but some translations say a natural mind can't accept. Some say that he doesn't receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. NASB uses appraised, ESV uses discerned, as does NKJV and NET. Uh, Holman Christian Standard Bible says evaluate, and that's an interesting translation. We won't go into pros and cons there. But um, this is kind of two different things going on here. First of all, a person who's natural-minded is a person who's operating in what we're talking about, a naturalistic worldview who has a tendency to be skeptical. Even when a brother or sister in the Lord is telling them what God's done in their life, they tend to be skeptical. Uh, you might... Uh, uh, say John Gray and I have a have a fight, and uh, a week later I, uh, I I make the mistake of telling my wife about the fight, and then a couple days later John Gray and I have made up, and I'm telling him what, her what a great guy John Gray is. She might remain skeptical. This happens a lot in marriage issues and stuff, where the the couple really does change, but people in their life don't believe they changed. And uh, you just have to go on and do what God wants you to do and continue to manifest the evidence of your change. But in any case, that's a natural person. You know, a person who's not walking by the power of the Holy Spirit, who's just living out of their own strength and is living out of their own understanding. Proverbs, you know, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Uh, All the time, you need to be skeptical of how you perceive things and ask God what his word says about it and how his spirit perceives the situation. That needs to be a kind of a posture you live your life in, not just a a once-in-a-while thing, but a frame of reference, a a posture toward life, you might say, an attitude. Now, if a person is a natural-minded person... The word they can't accept or receive is meaning. Kind of, they they actively are rejecting. So that's that's something they are actually uh, guilty or culpable and uh, morally accountable for doing. But if you go on, the reason they they're rejecting it is because they a priority consider the things of God to be foolishness. That's why you'll get people mock. Obvious wisdom, obvious understanding, obvious knowledge all the time if they don't know the Lord. I'm amazed how many Christians still don't get that enough that they would doubt unbelievers' opinions. There are people who will still uh, seek the counsel of the world. And in fact, uh, other than the New Thetic School of Counseling and the old medieval uh, Uh, Catholic view of the healing of the soul, most modern evangelical counseling is natural-minded humanistic psychology with a little bit of Bible verses thrown in. Now, it's not totally invalid because of the doctrine that uh, of common grace we're all still made in the image of God and and the image of God is not completely eradicated by sin. So some of their issues like love and and if you're insecure kind of crazy, some of that is kind of true, but it's of much less value than most Christian psychologists think it is, especially the ones who write the most popular books, because they're not thinking thoroughly biblical we uh, I don't have we ever gotten together the uh, article uh, the Gospel Gap is a foundational article. Oh, but we have it available now. So uh, there's a, uh, a foundational article called The Gospel Gap, which is it in the rack? Okay. Well, we'll be talking about it soon and passing it out. Uh, it's actually the first chapter of a very good Christian book on psychology. Anyway, we'll we'll get back to that some other time. Um. So they the fact that they reject these things. And consider them foolish is because they're actually under a spiritual, physical law. They cannot understand the things of the Spirit. Just like they can't fly. Right? And, you know, just like if they kick their the corner of the bed in the middle of the night with uh, their bare feet on the way to the restroom, they're going to stub their toe and it's going to hurt. Uh, you can't, there are laws, but just as the laws of physics apply, there are spiritual laws. If you humble yourself, you'll be exalted. If you exalt yourself, you'll be humbled. That's just the nature of things that God created. If you give, it'll be given to you, the law of reciprocity. How you evaluate and judge others is how God will judge you. The more you extend grace... The the more of a not know it all you are, the better you're actually doing good for your own soul. Did you know that? (laughs) Like, the nicest thing you can do for yourself is not be a know it all and not be harsh in judgment and be a very gracious person. That's the nicest thing you can do for yourself. Thank God for coffee. All right. So, uh, when he says he cannot understand them because they're spiritually discerned, the words cannot are two Greek words put together in this order, dunamai, which hopefully you recognize by now, Acts 1.8, they shall receive power, dunamis, when the Holy Spirit comes upon them. It means there's a spiritual power involved that's a ver- that comes from God and is personally attended to by God. That is dynamic, we get the word dynamite, dynamo, dynamo dynamic from, from the, this Greek word, dunamis. And, it, and it's the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the power of the gospel. It's the power of the resurrection. It's the power that God uses by, that's involved in grace. When we say grace is divine empowerment, grace is acceptance as you are, and it's, in, it's dunamis to grow. And this word is dunamis dunamis, oo, which means not. (laughs) So it's saying power not, able not. It's impossible. He's under a force like gravity that's too strong. When you are spirit, lean on your own understanding. When you are natural minded. When you are evaluating life out out of of other motivations than the Holy Spirit, whether they be demonic or fleshly, you are unable to understand the things of the Spirit. That's a physical law that cannot be broken. You will think yourself wise and in so doing prove yourself to be foolish. And it will be obvious to many around you if they are spiritually discerning, but not to you. That's why the, the, way, the only way to avoid deception, of course, is to study God's word and be filled with his spirit, but also be very open to those who have spiritual maturity and depth and insight to help us see. It's amazing to me how many people go to counseling and then they're more right than the counselor. And the, their life's the one that's in trouble. It's like, Really? So, make sure you understand that. That's what a natural mind is all about. Uh, Let's read Mark 5, and then we'll get into 2 Corinthians 4. 4. I'm going to have to push myself along. So Mark 5, where did I put my pen? Verse uh, 25, is that where we're starting? Yes. Uh, A great crowd followed him and thronged around him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, who had suffered much. Under many physicians, sounds like modern times, um, and it's been all that she had. That sounds like modern times. <laughs> it was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. It, is there? If we could get away to turn these down a little, I'm I'm almost going to pass out. I'm so hot. Uh, for she said, "If I touch even his garment, I will be made well." The Greek means, "I'll be made whole." I'll be saved, is really, uh, so. I'll be sozo. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself, how? By the power of the Spirit, of course. Uh, Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, that is, the power of the Holy Spirit, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? Like, people are bumping into him. It was like a great slam dance. (laughs) You know, they're they're going someplace, and a crowd is, like, uh, gathered. He's bumping into people everywhere. But this lady touched him with faith that had been given to her from God the Father by the Holy Spirit in who Jesus was, with an expectation and attitude of receptivity a spiritual disposition or posture. That's what she knows. If I can touch Jesus, I'll be sozoed, I'll be saved. And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, not uh, someone I don't know, he says to her daughter, Notice, all through the Gospels, whoever God gives faith in Jesus, Jesus calls them sons of God and daughters of God. The Syrophoenician woman, who was a Canaanite by birth and not an Israelite by birth, yet when she answers with faith, he says, O woman, great is your faith. And he grants her something that he told her was the exclusive privilege of the children of God. He'd already said, only the children of God can have that deliverance. And he, so he's basically saying, you're a children of God. Put the logical argument together. And he said to her daughter, your faith has saved you, is what the literal means. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Now, that is actually a spiritual activity. And that's really the posture that has to happen to get baptized in the Spirit. And that's the posture that has to happen to continually be filled over and over again with the Spirit. So, um, let's move on. Uh, 2 Corinthians four. 4. In their case, the small g, uh, speaking of Satan, Jesus actually three times in the Gospel of John calls Satan the ruler of this age, uh, the God of this world, has blinded the minds, notice minds, of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing, perceiving, understanding the light of the Gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Now, blind in the natural Means unable to see, right? Spiritually blind. I keep saying blind, blind shrimp. Blind, brine. I Hopefully, I didn't say glory of God instead of glory of God. I'm stumbling over my words this morning. Unable to see is to is to not be able to perceive, to understand, to comprehend, to discern or evaluate. In the same way, if you look at the parable of the soil at the start of Matthew 13, that uh, goes all the way through the first 23 verses, Jesus tells the parable. Then he tells four or five verses about why he's telling things in parable. Then he explains the first parable. And in the explanation, we come to understand the problem with each of the people who did not bear fruit 30, 60, and 100-fold is they under-evaluated the things of God. Sound familiar? They underevaluated the importance of seeking him, of studying him, of living his way instead of our way, of being a radical Christian. To a natural-minded person, someone who's more on fire than you is a zealot or, at best, and a fanatic at worst. But a fanatic is sometimes just someone who loves Jesus more than you do. And more than your sinful, fleshly, antichrist fallen nature is willing to go. Therefore, we have to cry out to God make me on fire for you. Because your natural flesh is not going to ever be on fire for Christ, it's never going to study enough. It's never going to be intimate enough with God. It's always going to keep God at various distances. It's always going to have various excuse-making and rationalization for various kinds of compromise about the delivery systems of His grace, the Word, the Spirit, and the Church. That's always going to be the natural-minded man's lot in life. But the spiritual man... The Bible says in Romans five that the love of God was poured out through the Holy Spirit in whom dwells us. The more of the Holy Spirit you experience and receive, the more you're going to know both how much He loves you. That, that phrase in Romans is ambivalent on purpose, because the love of God is a cyclical thing. It's the more 1 John 4:19 says, "We love because He first loved us." The more you kind of come out of performance base and guilt-shame-based, and, and self-effort, natural-minded Christianity, the more you come into Holy Spirit, how much God loves you, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, which is the first thing the Holy Spirit wants to speak over you every morning through Christ. Not because you had, are such a great Christian, because He's such a great Christian, and you're in Him now. The more you do that, the more you'll be on fire for God. And someone who's more consistent in their love for God, not just seeming zealous, but Jesus gave us some definition of zealous, the one who loves me is the one who obeys my commandments. Right? Like how we do this walk tells us where we're at. It's a great gift from God. You can actually know your reality by whether you're doing the things that God wants you to do, especially when you're in private. So, um, the whole unbelief thing is a type of soil, you might say. It's a posture of your affections, your your emotions—that's part of your soul—and your mind, and your will, which are the three core beings uh, things of your soul—that is a posture of trust and faith, or it's a po- posture of trust and faith in yourself, or in the worldly experts, or or you know uh, what the stock market's doing, or what the news media is saying, or or any other screwy way of getting information. of which there are many available in our culture. Now, let's talk a little bit about man's trichotomous nature, which I just touched on. Those verses there, if you notice, we'll just do 1 Thessalonians 5, 23, your spirit and soul and body. In the Greek, the word chi is between spirit and soul, and K-I, k-i-i, kappa-alpha-iota, uh, and it means and. And the word chi is between soul and body. Because Paul is making it very clear, he's speaking of three different parts of your being, your spirit and your soul and your body. To be fair, there is a battle in in, uh, theology, uh, whether man is two parts or three parts, dichotomous or trichotomous. The dichotomous people say it's because it's clear that both your spirit and soul leave your body when you die and go to be with the Lord. So they can't be separated, is the argument. Um, And it seems that if you add up all the scriptures on spirit and soul, that they sometimes do some of the same things. Uh, And that tends to be the perspective of non-charismatic, non-Pentecostal types of Christians. Uh, Most charismatic and Pentecostal types of Christians uh, tend to think of man as trichotomous. And, uh, you know, uh, Wayne Grudem gives the arguments for both in his uh, systematic theology. I read them afresh this morning. And it's his are he's a dichotomist, but his arguments for the trichotomist are, are very convincing, if you ask me. But in any case, your spirit uh, has an intuitive knowledge that God exists. There are no true atheists. Atheist really means against God. Someone who doesn't believe in God, it's because. They, uh, their sin nature hates God, so they're God deniers. There's Holocaust deniers. There's all kind of deniers. There's all kind of people that would say there's no, never been any racial problems, there's never been any gender problems, you get pe- there's never been any economic problems. You can get people to deny anything. Okay, so uh, your spirit has your intuitive knowledge that God exists, and some basic facts about his non-communicable attributes, your spirit has a sense that he's awesome and infinite and eternal and things of this nature. Um, and holy, and so so also his uh, communicable attributes. Uh, but you're, uh, we'll go on that in a minute. but that's twisted by sin, is what I'm saying. So its perceptions aren't perfect. But every person has some perception of that. That's why some of the most famous atheists cried out to God for grace and forgiveness on their deathbed, and it's well-documented. That's why they say there's no atheist in foxholes. It's really cool to be an atheist when you're 25 years old and you haven't realized you're going to die yet. But uh, the truth of the matter is some of the most famous atheists in history have cried out to God as they were dying and, asked, and, and said, "I was a fool. Had, God, have mercy on me," and so forth. So, um, your spirit also uh, is where God, where spiritual beings dwell. It can be a habitation for demons or for God. It has a conscience, and your conscience was meant to reflect God's Ten Commandments uh, and all the um, statutes and ordinances that we've talked about around them, as well as God's character and his being. But your conscience gets defiled because of our sin, so sometimes it gets callous. Sometimes your conscience doesn't bother you about the things that it should be bothering you about. And it bothers you about things God doesn't care about that 's you know the people who go around washing their hands all the time or picking up trash or they're obsessively guilty about everything, but they 've never done anything that 's why I love that second scene in the movie Luther when his confessor, his pastor goes martin i've been your, you've been confessing your sins to me for two years, and you've never even confessed anything that's remotely interesting <laughs> you know <laughs> and uh some, sometimes people who, who live pretty outwardly godly, are really troubled in their conscience, uh, and as well as they should be, because they haven't really discovered justification by faith and grace yet. So, um, your conscience uh, in Christ, one of the parts of sanctification and maturation is God is cleansing and, and restoring your conscience. That's why Paul tells us not to reject faith or a good conscience. We, you, have to, you have to steward your conscience and, and ask God to make it uh, work how it's supposed to so that it really is upset about things it should be upset about and not so much about things that God doesn't care about that are extra-biblical moralities. Anytime you get performance, antinomianism, and all these rules that aren't biblical, you get a lot of guilt and shame based in there because we all know we fall short of our own standards. Your soul has three parts. Your mind or your intellect. That includes your memory, your cognitive processes, your ability to know and process information. Your soul has your emotions or your affections. Um, Jonathan Edwards was big on talking about the religious affections. What you, what you love should be changing as you grow in Christ. You know, If you still love uh, Ohio State football more than you love a lot of other things, you haven't gone very far in Christ yet. You know, it doesn't mean we can't love art and sports and things that are neutral, but we love them way suppressed compared to the spiritual, eternal things of God. You know, I knew a Christian guy who had some issues once that actually. Uh, took a baseball bat to his television when his team lost. <laughs> I was like, well, Lord, I guess there's some work to be done here. <laughs> May you have mercy. Help help us grow. Um, your body, your five senses fi- s- send physical sensations to your soul, and you go through a cognitive evaluation process. Now, the reason I get into this is I want us to understand a thing I'm now calling metacognitive constitution. I used to call it Solical Fiber, and I've always said I need a better name. So I finally came up with a better name. Uh, But it's the way we hear. When you meet some people, they process completely intellectually and abstractly. They don't hear with their spirit or their emotions at all. Some people who don't hear with their spirit or their mind, they hear emotionally. And some people who hear emotionally are wounded emotionally, so they also hear defensively emotionally. Or angrily, emotionally, <laughs> some people are quick to anger, and so forth. And uh, but all of us have a way that we hear and process, and we need to grow in our ability to hear the Spirit of God and process and be led by the Spirit of God. That's what we're saying here. That's a mark of Christian maturity. It's not, Jesus said that we have to love God with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. Christian maturity is never uneducated, biblically. You know, I talk to Christians all the time. who think they have great walks with the Spirit, who know very little about the Bible or Christian books or Christian history or greater Christian traditions. But they know a whole lot about God. You can't. you, You know, He communicates through his word, and his word and him are inseparable, as your word and you are inseparable. You want to get to know someone? You can't do that without talking to them. (laughs) Or reading their books or something, some communication that they've given you. Read their Facebook or whatever, (laughs) modernize this. Uh, The Bible is God's Facebook page. Oh, my God. (laughs) Shoot me and I'll go to heaven right now. All right. (laughs) All right. Uh, Epistemology 101. I'm not going to get into that. Um, You have an epistemology worldview handout. We've taught thoroughly on this many times on Tuesday nights, our best Bible study that we have. Um, But there's a process of learning how to rely on the Scripture Uh, and uh, and the voice of the Holy Spirit. No no religion of the world that believes in spiritual revelation, science dismisses that altogether. I wish I had time to talk about what scientism is and so forth. Maybe I'll do one more week on this uh, message. Probably will. Um, But any religion that believes that there's a spiritual being that communicates Always has sacred text because it's inescapable that we would hear in a faulty way Even false religions can recognize that that's why Hindus have the Bhagavad Gita and and all sorts of other books and, and Muslims have books and the Mormons have books and the Jehovah's Witnesses have books and every false religion still has books uh, even though they teach things quite contrary to Christ in the Bible, and therefore, by the way, if you're still a modernist who thinks that their truth is true for them, if it's working, and our truth is true, they, that's absurd position because if they're contradictory, then they both can't be right. That's uh, called the law of non-contradiction. So we'll we'll actually come back next week and talk a little bit about what faith is. But you have to begin to learn, one of the things I always do when I'm helping someone get ready to get baptized in the Spirit, uh, or when I'm helping someone to grow in the Lord, is I first ask you, you've, most of you, you've heard me ask you 50 times, are you sensing the presence of God in the worship? Are you sensing the presence of God when you read your Bible? Uh, are you getting uh, a sensing an intimate, powerful, spiritual flow of the Holy Spirit in your life? That is a must starting point to start to grow in the Lord. Amen.